All right, so today's message, the, we're doing a series uh, on 15 emphasis for rediscovering and, and, and restoration. The series is called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. We're on the fourth of 15 emphasis. The fourth one is uh, supposed to be the church, I think. Are, are those not in order, or, or they are in order? Can you go to the first slide, or will it automatically? There you go. All right, so... We're, I think we're actually on the fourth one called leadership. And so we have looked at various leadership terms. I can't spend much time reviewing it, but we looked at the word priest and the idea of the priesthood of all believers is a huge Christian idea um, that was made possible through Christ. Uh, then we looked at... Uh, uh, the words overseer, and, uh, which uh, in Greek, presbyteros or episkopos, that we normally get the words Presbyterian and Episcopalian or bishop from. And uh, those are normally the terms used of elders or overseers in the local churches. We looked at deacons and deaconesses. Then we looked at how Ephesians 4, 7, and 8 says that Christ, when he ascended on high, that he gave... Uh, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And we pointed out that these are gifts that are given primarily in the church, but they're actually given for the benefit of all mankind. And the church is here for the whole world. Even though the world doesn't necessarily have eyes to understand their need for the church. So, with that, we began to look at what I call the sevenfold leadership gifts or ministry gifts. Uh, the word ministry is very important to understand. In America, when we, uh, we, we were a, a, a colony, we were a series of 13 colonies of the British government, and when the, the colonies united to throw off the British rule in the War of Independence from 1775 to 1781, there was kind of a desire, being that we were the first group of colonies to break from England, and there was kind of a, a little bit more nastiness in the, in the air than there was in many subsequent countries uh, gaining their freedom. We threw off more British things than most. So uh, most former British colonies... Uh, you, you still use the word minister, where we have like a secretary of war and a secretary of treasury. We didn't carry over the British term minister. But minister is a very important term. Uh, the Greek word for diakonai means to be a table waiter, to serve. And it mean, when, you're, when you do ministry, you can't represent yourself. The most important thing to understand about the ministry gifts that Christ gave in Ephesians 4, what's, you, what's going on with Noel? And, okay, you good? Okay. So, um, I just have trouble focusing with all that going on. Um, in Ephesians 4, 7, when Christ gave gifts to men, uh, he gave ministry gifts. And this is it's so important to understand this. If you are the minister of finance from the nation of India or whatever, you can't have your own agenda. You have to have the agenda that the government of India gives to you. 
If you're, do you understand what I'm saying? So, for instance, in our Holy Spirit series, uh, part one, we study the person of the Holy Spirit. Then we study the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I always uh, correct some thinking right from the beginning. We have been brainwashed in contemporary Christianity to think beginning with man. And so when we hear something like the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are automatically brainwashed to narcissistically think, what's in it for me? What does the Holy Spirit do for me? But if we're, but what the real question is, what does the Holy Spirit do on behalf of the Father and the Son? That's why the creed says that he proceeds from the Father, if you're an Eastern Christian, If you're a Western Christian, it says he proceeds from the Father and the Son. I certainly don't want to enter that debate right here. But but the truth is, he didn't come on his own initiative, Jesus says. Whatever he hears, he speaks. Uh, That's why, you know, Peter actually addresses ministers and says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as it were the words of God. You know, Daniel spoke today at 9.30. We didn't, uh, as a church, commission Daniel uh, to come up here and pontificate on his philosophies and ideas, nor to entertain us from his great deep reading of Babylon B or any, or, or, or any of his great sources of study. But, um, but what we want him to articulate is the mind and heart of God. And so again, back to our Catholic versus Protestant systematic theologies, when the Catholics start with the attributes of God, there's an important point there. And the point is that Jesus made it clear that the, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. By the way, would someone make sure Stephen Leopold knows that the, the paint job on the clock is wonderful. I can see it great now. All right, so uh, thank you, Stephen if you're watching by videocast. The, uh, the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. So that's why when we do the Holy Spirit series, we do the person of the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then the activities, because one proceeds from the other. The person of the Holy Spirit gives rise to the ministries of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit isn't going to do something that's non-congruent with himself. And because he was sent on behalf of the Father and the Son, and he always does what they send him to do, and although there are three persons in the Trinity, there is one being, and their will is always one, the person of the Holy Spirit and the attributes of the Holy Spirit are necessary to understand what his ministry is. I actually always use Anvesh Paramala as my illustration of this. And as you know, Anvesh is known for his wisdom and his consistency and his humility and his gentleness and so forth. So if someone were to come up to me, let's say, uh, you know, Sam and Anvesh used to be roommates. And if uh, Sam were to come up to me and say, Anvesh punched me in the mouth, uh, I would know that there's about to be a joke said or something. I know that's not true. 
I don't have to hear any evidence or whatever because I know Anvesh is not, he can't do something that's not congruent with his person. So I'm, if he said something like, you know, Anvesh punched me in the mouth, I expect maybe that's the lead line to a riddle or, or a joke or something, but the, it actually didn't happen because it couldn't happen, right? So that's, so when we uh, study scripture, one of the things that, that, that is such a mess today is everybody makes scripture a matter of their own private interpretation, as Peter tells us not to do. But how to understand scripture is scripture proceeds from the mouth of heart of God. So the key to the first key to interpreting all scripture is is Second Timothy three sixteen. All scripture is God breathed. So the starting point to understand any doctrine of scripture is to study the attributes of God. Now, the Protestants also have a point when they start with Scripture first and then the attributes of God second because how can we know the attributes of God except by the Scriptures? (laughs) Right? Now, all of us were born, created by God, and we have programmed into our spirit and our conscience certain things about God. However, every part of us was affected by the fall of man, and so that which God created within us has been twisted and perverted. There's a reason why there's no atheist in foxholes, as they say, because deep down everyone knows there's a God, and they know certain things about God. Even the atheist, the word, the prefix a, means against, and an atheist is not a neutral person. He's a person that hates God so much that he's willing to embrace all kinds of, you know, ontological crap and, and, and false arguments and, and skittish thinking and, and, frankly, insanity to try to convince himself there is no God. But deep down, the atheist doesn't believe it because he knows it's not true. But the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, because his heart is that perverted that he wants there to be no God. Because if there's no God, then we can be our own God. And like Lucifer, he wants to worship himself. Atheism is a very religious, worshipful religion. And you always worship epistemologically who you see as the source of all authority. And, and, and for an atheist, it's man, man worships himself. As does Satan. And all religions that are not Christ-centered are always the worship of the creation and the creature. As Paul makes clear in Romans 1, 2, and 3. All right, so uh, if you look in your outline, go, uh, let's see, to uh, toward the bottom of page two. Last week, we looked at, uh, in section B, the seven surface 
seven service gifts. We did helps and administrations long before I went to India. We did teachers last week, and we mostly looked at the three types of shepherding or teaching, information, formation, and impartation. Today, we're going to look a little bit more closely at the word poimain, which is translated in most English translations as pastor, uh, although it's translated in the English Standard Version, Young's Literal, uh, Wycliffe, and the, uh, uh, what is it, the Complete Jewish Bible or something like that. Uh, It's translated uh, as shepherd, and it should be translated shepherd. The word poimain appears 17 times in the, in the King James Bible, the Greek word, and in the other 16 places it's translated shepherd. It was only translated pastor in Ephesians 4.11. And there was a reason for that because they didn't want you to think of it as to what it biblically is, a shepherd. They wanted you to think of a pastor. Now, if you know the history of the words, you know that pastor etymologically came from shepherd, So it might sound like I'm talking nonsense, but I'm not, although uh, you might think I am. Uh, That's your opinion. Um, But here's the the difference. Here's the way to understand what I'm trying to get at. Every word has a denotative and a connotative meaning. The denotative meaning of a word is what it actually means. The connotative meaning is what you tend to feel or associate with the word. And so, uh, although technically, denotatively, shepherd and pastor mean the same thing, we tend to connotatively think of a shepherd as someone who knows you, someone who gets the burrs out of your wool, so to speak, who protects you from the lion and the bear, uh, who leads you to new pastures, uh, who knows where you live, and you've been to dinner with them, and you've washed a car together or something. You know what I mean? A shepherd is a more personable term in, pe- in, your, in people's minds. The, sh- the word shepherd uh, corresponds more to what God had in mind in terms of shepherding. Now, in John 13, 15, Jesus tells the disciples after washing their feet, he's trying to explain the importance of the lesson. And if you notice, uh, you, you sh- hopefully you know this about, uh, I've said this a million times, but it's very important to understand. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels from two Greek words, the prefix S-Y-N or S-Y-M in front of any word mean the same. And then the, the suffix phanos for symphony, phanos is sound. And a symphony is a bunch of musical instruments that are supposed to sound well together. However, if they're modern music, they're probably cacophony, <laughs> like Shostakovich. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, that's a personal joke with Christiana. My wife and Christiana like Prokofiev and Shostakovich. And even that French guy, Debussy. Oh, my God. I'm just messing with him. So, uh, but uh, 
who who uh, whose music doesn't sound very well together, and it's really cacophony. No, I'm just just kidding. Uh, we don't need to do this anymore because we have phones and watches that are controlled by the international nuclear clock or whatever. But it used to be that our you know old fashioned watches kept time a little differently. And so if John Gray and I wanted to be very precise, if we were having a meeting tonight at 7, I might say if we're talking on the phone at 3, let's synchronize our watches. S-Y-N, make them the same. Chronos is the Greek word for time. So I might say, what time do you have? And, oh, 303, well, I have 301. Let's compromise and set our watches for three or two, 302. And hopefully our watches keep good enough time that by 7 o'clock they're still relatively the same. Um, you know, now all of that's controlled uh, outside your phone or your watch, and normally we all have exactly the same time anymore. But that that sympathy uh, would be to to you know pathos has to do with your feelings or so forth, and uh, to be sympathetic would be to 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 think to feel with the person what they feel. And so forth, right? So the synoptic gospels, optometry, opto- ophthalmology, it has to do with vision, and the synoptic gospels see Jesus in a similar light. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover most of the same incidents in Jesus' life, most of the same discourses or teachings, uh, and most of the same uh, miracles, etc. Luke, because of the way he did his research, which he discusses in the first four verses of Luke 1, 1 through 4, he did his research like a historian. He's not an eyewitness. Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. Mark was partially an eyewitness. He's the young man who flees in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he was uh, Peter's disciple much of his life, although at times he uh, traveled with Paul. And he happened to be Barnabas' cousin, so at times he traveled, traveled with Barnabas. If you remember uh, when Paul and Barnabas split up, they split up over the issue of whether John Mark was, was ready to go back out uh, uh, apostolically with them and be part of the team because the first time they had, he had gone out with Paul and Barnabas, he had gotten scared and, and left the team and gone back to Antioch. And so... John Mark is now saying, I'm sorry, I apologize, give me another chance. And Paul is saying that he's not ready for another chance. And Barnabas uh, is probably letting his family affections uh, influence his thinking. And he's thinking John Mark is ready. And Paul was so adamant about that, that Paul split up. And the scripture makes it clear that the brothers agreed with Paul. And so uh, he was commended by the brothers to the grace of God. Later in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, he actually tells them uh, to receive John Mark, right? John Mark is, so those three, you know, John Mark at the end of his life was in Rome with Peter when Peter was about to be executed by Nero and Peter asked John Mark to write a gospel and he, uh, in John Mark's gospel, is primarily Peter's gospel. So Matthew and Mark and John 
are primarily written by eyewitnesses. Luke, the only non-Hebrew writer of the New Testament, the only Greek called the beloved physician, is interviewing lots of the eyewitnesses. 1 Corinthians tells us there are 500 people who saw Jesus risen from the dead, so they were witnesses to at least some of it. Uh, although there were varying degrees of that because the, uh, the, the 12 apostles were among the first called to follow Jesus, and therefore they were eyewitnesses to more of Jesus' overall ministry and so forth. In any case, Matthew, Mark, and Luke see Jesus in a similar light. And so when it comes to the Passover supper, Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on three things. They focus on Jesus giving us the communion meal, basically showing us how uh, the Lord's Supper is the fulfillment of the Passover supper that foreshadows the Lord's Supper in Exodus chapter 12. Secondly, uh, Jesus focuses at the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account on the fact that Peter will deny Jesus three times. And one of the four, or one of the three gives us, I think it's Luke, you can look that up, uh, gives us that Peter will be brought to repentance and restored. Jesus tells him, when you've turned again, Strengthen your brethren. And then in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus thirdly focuses on the fact that Judas would betray him. John's Last Supper gives us none of that. And John covers, John's Last Supper is John 13, John 14, 15, 16, four full chapters. And John's gospel is centered around five miracles of Jesus of which four are not related in the, in the other Gospels, and five discourses of Jesus, none of which are related in the other Gospels. Because John has already read the other Gospels, and he is intentionally bringing out other aspects of the life of Jesus. And he knows that this in the future will be criticized and questioned, so he gives us at the very end Many other things did Jesus do, and I suppose if all of them were related, not even the world itself could contain the books, because he realizes that he's relating primarily material that the other three didn't cover. Is everyone following that? So, in John's version of the Last Supper, Jesus doesn't tell us about the Lord's Supper, or Peter denying him, or Judas betraying him. But what he tells us is that he's about to go to be with the Father. And that his ministry is going to continue the same, except now it's going to continue through the apostles. And that's why John's gospel in chapters 14, 15, and 16 give us more about the Holy Spirit than all the other gospels combined because Jesus is making it clear that I'm going to continue doing my ministry by the Holy Spirit, who I will send from the Father. So John starts in John 13 with the very important fact that uh, Jesus uh, girds himself with a towel and begins to wash his feet. 
there, I mean, begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, the importance of that culturally is a little bit missed on us because uh, I've had Sam and Amber over to my house, but I've never washed their feet uh, when they came in. <laughs> uh, although I would imagine at Sam's house, you probably take off your shoes when you first come in because most Oriental people do that. In India, if you go into someone's house, you take your feet, shoes off at the door. If you remember Chris and Amanda Wu, uh, one of the things about their culture, being from Taiwan, was uh, you take your shoes off at the door. And almost all Asian people do that. And that's something that goes back to ancient times. Because when you traveled, you you traveled on roads that weren't paved. They were dirt, dust roads. And you wore open sandals. I'm actually wearing shoes now for the second time since I burned my foot the night before I went to India. And, uh, you know, they're, they're actually closed shoes, but uh, I was wearing sandals the last uh, six or so weeks. And uh, the sandals let your feet get dirty. And so if you are a person of means... Uh, if you were a humble person, you might wash your guests' feet yourself. But if you were a person of means, you would probably have one of your servants wash the guests' feet as they came in. So Jesus is doing something very intentional and very important. He's starting the entire discourse about the continuation of his ministry. And he's saying, it, everything has to be done on the foundation of being a servant. If you miss that point, everything is going to be screwed up. What we have today, when you see uh, what, what primarily uh, Pentecostals and Charismatics were known for throughout uh, the, the 20th century, especially the great ministries of like the 1940s faith evangelists and so forth, they were known for financial scandals, sexual scandals, and for doing a lot of the ministry was about the, the rock star who led it. And their name and how anointed they were and all that kind of thing. And they, they were ministries very anointed of God. The gifts and call of God are irrevocable but missing the point of the servants washing the feet entirely. And this, this is so important that I, I usually try to give a, a metaphor or analogy story that I learned from my good friend Eric Meyer. It's a little bit like if, um, you know, I was talking to, um, I think it was Aruna, uh, David's wife in India this past week. And I said it'd be a little bit like if uh, the prime minister of India showed up at David and, and Aruna's house, they would probably want to give him an important seat, or her, I, I can't remember if it's him or her. But what if they said, uh, can I borrow a plastic bucket, a rag, and some soap and water? And then they took the soap and water and they proceeded to go out and wash David's car. You know, if uh, Donald Trump or Obama showed up at our church, we would probably try to give them an important seat. Uh, but what if they said, no, no, I don't have time for that. Do you have a bucket in the, like, the, can you show me where the mop closet is? 
And uh, they proceeded to go out and start washing people's cars in the parking lot. We would probably be a little bit surprised by that because the rulers of this age don't do that sort of thing. But that's exactly what the rulers of the kingdom are all about. And Jesus is actually telling us, you can't afford to have the most awesome power of the universe inside yourself if you don't first have the desire to wash the cars inside yourself. And if you, if you get that wrong, it will destroy everything. Which is a lot of what we're facing today. Now, all of that is to talk about uh, the word shepherd. Because a shepherd isn't uh, a hoity-toity great job. If you remember when uh, the prophet Samuel approached Jesse, David's father, and said, I want to have a banquet with your sons, David, the youngest, who was the shepherd, uh, wasn't even invited. They probably figured he smelled too bad (laughs) from hanging out, out in the wilderness with a lot of sheep. Yet David had been faithful writing worship songs that we now use as the Psalms and protecting the sheep at the risk of his life. He had learned how to kill a lion and a bear. It's a little tougher than I am. I think I killed a teddy bear once. But uh, but uh, only John Gray killed a real bar. Killed, killed him a bar when he was only three. Davy, Davy Crockett. So, um, so this, you know, God actually knew that David was his choice, but man doesn't think like God thinks. That they, nobody in in, J, in David's whole family understood who David was, yet he was perfectly submitting to God's preparation. So, a shepherd means to tend, to feed, or to to rule. They have two primary responsibilities, to teach and to govern. And hopefully we get this connotation versus denotation, because a shepherd is a lowly thing. It's a dirty job. But a shepherd lives right among the sheep and knows the sheep. You know, you know that I do this all the time in my first, second, or third meeting with someone that I'm starting to teach or disciple or shepherd. I will say, how many times has a biblically qualified pastor actually sat down and had lunch with you like this or whatever we're doing? And almost always people say never. Almost always people say never. Almost always people say never. You need to hear that. Because if there's one thing a shepherd should have done is he should have talked to you about playing the piano or, you know, why you like playing jump rope when you were a girl or, 
you know, wh why you're studying marine biology or, or why you like NASCAR or baseball or he, he should know you. He should know your name. He should know how you got to where you are in the Lord. All of you who know my pastoral style know that one of the first things I talk to you about is I get you to open up about how you got here, so to speak. Not just how you arrived at our church, but how did you get to where you're at in terms of God right now? What was your journey? What did God do in your life when you were 7 or 14 or what have you? Who are you? And where's... what? Because... In 2 Corinthians 5, it tells us, although we've known no man, although we knew Christ according to the flesh, we know him thus no longer. And so the most important thing I'm always trying to do with everyone, and this is those I'm saying this for especially for the six couples that are shepherding our discipleship groups, is I'm trying to be able to see what the person looks like when they're mature in Christ. I'm trying to, to, to see what they look like complete in Christ. And I'll tell you, the people that I've had the most effective ministry with, like John Gray, is people who I saw that clearly from the beginning. And that's, that is like what I'm trying to tell us this in terms of shepherding, because here's what a shepherd is. All of you are shepherds in Christ. And some people uh, grow with Christ to, to such a degree and become so effective at shepherding that we start to call you that. And we start to make a provision for you to do it more often with more people. And that's why we have like a leadership team because those are people who started doing it and now they're starting to grow and they do it better than they used to do it. And there's every reason to believe they're going to do it better and better over time. Because it looks like that's the trajectory of where they're going. And you can hear it the way they teach at 930. And you can observe it in the way they, uh, they help, you know, like sometimes I'll have them help with uh, pastoral care kind of meetings. And, and you can see that, they're, that they start developing various gifts that teach that tend, that feed, that help people govern their life under toward the lordship of Christ progressively. Because what people suffer from is things like their finances not being under the lordship of Christ, which will cause you great pain. Or your sex drive not being under the lordship of Christ, which may cause you great pain. Or your emotions not being under the lordship of Christ or your relational skills not being under the lordship of Christ, or your approach to work and vocation not being under the lordship of Christ, or the, you, uh, the fact that you make big decisions in your life without opening them up to counsel until after you made the decision, which is the source of all sorts of misery and grief. Right? So what a, a, a person who's uh, beginning to mature in the Lord Re thinks like, oh, I'm ordering lunch. I don't really need any counsel on how to do that. I might take into account the uh, 
17 articles I've written, read over the last two years on nutrition, and maybe I won't go with like Fruit Loops for lunch or, or Hershey bars. <laughs> maybe I'll get you know, some mixed vegetables or something. So you might let the knowledge you have already influence your lunch decision. But I usually don't like call John Gray and ask his opinion. Uh, do you think I should go with the brown rice or you know the white meat chicken or the dark meat chicken? John Gray would be like, Greg, I'm at work. <laughs> yeah, I gotta go. <laughs> you know. Uh, but there's lots of decisions I don't make until I get the right uh, counsel. And shepherding is a huge, learning both to shepherd and to be shepherded is, uh, is the source of safety in the Christian life. So that clock is saying like a quarter to one. So I, I, I was thinking it was a quarter to 12. So I've, been not, I've not been moving along too fast. So I apologize to anyone who's still with us. A lot of people probably left the podcast or the cast by now. So let's say some quick things about shepherds because I want to get on to evangelists next week. So A, they're always used in plurality. Shepherds are always teams. Even now with these discipleship groups, we put two couples in charge of each one. Part of that is so as the groups grow, we can split each group into two uh, groups eventually by just having one of the couples take, you know, these 12 people and the other couple take these 13 people or whatever and and then both, have both groups continue to grow. But shepherding is always done as a team. It's always a plural thing. We prefer whenever possible for a lot of reasons, having it, uh, at least a husband and wife involved. B, the primary qualifications are character, lifestyle, uh, some ability to teach, and some maturity. The qualifications are listed in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9. Uh, if you want to, you can go on Arbor Church's website. They have podcasts too. And our, our good friend Steve Woodman did an excellent series in their church about those. And I listened to one of the teachings live when I was on my sabbatical or so a year or two back. And uh, you could find those and listen to them. But going just through that list of character qualities in 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 9, in and First Timothy three one through seven is is very helpful. C shepherds are a local ministry. They're delegated by Christ through the elders of the church. Now the the Bible actually talks about people who uh, shepherd in ways that aren't very helpful or biblical, and it actually warns against being busybodies. And I forget the Greek wording for that, but there, there's uh, at least two or three New Testament verses about watching out for busybodies. There's lots of people who get involved in all sorts of uh, advice and so forth that nobody's uh, encouraged them to do, nor are they qualified to do. And that's why, you know, people say, well, why do you point out that this and this couple's in leadership because we want to say, uh, to a certain degree, uh, 
these people uh, have knowledge, wisdom, integrity, proven experience over time, and all of us bear witness to the effectiveness of their ministry. You know, there's nobody on the leadership team that not everyone else on the leadership team thinks should be on the leadership team. Right? So that's, that's huge. Because a, a leader always has other people saying, yeah, they're a good leader. You do well to get advice from them or listen to them. And lots of people have lots of advice that doesn't necessarily come out of a seasoned, uh, b- fully biblical knowledge, healthy, healthy marriages, healthy experience. In, there's no such thing. In sports, there are lots of effective and good coaches that weren't good players. That's never the case in the kingdom of God. I hope you heard that. In sports, it's very theoretically possible for a guy who wasn't a very good player to become a good coach. That's not possible in the kingdom of God. How you, where you are in your maturity and so forth very much affects whether you're a good source of counsel and wisdom. Does that make sense? That's huge. Hebrews 13, 7, 17, and 24. You should know these verses. Verse 7, remember those who rule over you. Uh, New American Standard, that's New King James. New American Standard says, remember those who led you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, or follow their faith, New American Standard, considering the outcome of their conduct, imitate their way of life. Verse 17, obey those who rule over you. New American Standard again, obey your leaders. Can you imagine saying that to anybody? Like, uh, you know, they're, they're used to uh, be in weddings. They're used to use the word love, honor, and obey. No, they don't, nobody uses that anymore. <laughs> Obedience is not something that even kids are, want, you know, expected to do. But learning, a, a, a mature person always can appropriate uh, authority over them and le- legitimate authority. They're not, like a mature person is never known constitutionally as a rebel. A rebel without a cause is not a sign of maturity. A do your own thing kind of person. A lot of times you obey just because you're a team player. You can't, you know, I, I uh, had some success at playing sports and coaching sports, not on any serious levels, mostly like inner city uh, kids teams and stuff like that. But we, you know, won the championship several years in a row and, and actually had a team that I led that was that didn't lose a game for over three years. And you can't win if people have their own agenda. The agenda has to be obedient to the, what the team's goals are. And I had some very strict, uh, for an inner city team, I, you know, I had a rule that they weren't allowed to uh, say anything to the other team unless it was a compliment. I would actually bench even my star if they said something derogatory to the other team. 
if they even had body language against the the umpires called, they were they I took them out of the game. In other words, they couldn't even uh, you know like have an attitude in their body language about you know. And if they ever hinted that we lost or did this or that because uh, of a bad call by the referee, they didn't play for at least two games after that. Because you know what, bad calls are part of life. And you have to be good enough to, to you know, why, why are you in the position where a bad call could affect you? You should be far enough ahead that, there's, that a bad call can't affect you. So that, that may sound nutty to, to, to our modern way of thinking, but if you, if you can uh, blame the refs, what you're doing is disempowering yourself. Because the outcome of the game is is how we play. I didn't necessarily care about how the refs operated or how the other team. How did we carry ourselves? Obey your leaders and submit to them because they keep watch for your souls as those who will give an account. Uh, greet all those who rule over you. Moving on to First Peter 5. Therefore, I exhort... The elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and as a partaker also of the glory that speed revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples of the flock. And when Christ, the chief shepherd, appears, you will receive the unfading uh, crown of glory. So at this point, I was going to have Daniel help us read a lot of these other verses that are listed there, but because I messed up on the time, um, we will not. But I would encourage you to read these verses. Um, here's what I always say. The reason we need more than a see you on Sunday kind of Christianity, the reason we have discipleship groups, the reason we live close to one another whenever possible, the reason we work together, the reason we have showers and dinners after church and all kind of things, is we want to pr- promote a community centered in Christ as much as possible. And there's three or four different levels in which Christ shepherds us. One is through the scriptures directly. Two is through the God-ordained shepherds that God puts in the church, the discipleship group leaders, and so forth. But through, and, and also household heads and single houses and things like that. Uh, you know, God puts authority in, in married couples over their children and in marriage in the relationship of the husband and wife and so forth. But also there's a way in which the whole church shepherds us. You know, we encourage one another. We uh, hold one another accountable and so forth. All of us should be shepherding one another. You know, the the line that I'm not my brother's keeper was given by Cain to excuse why he killed Abel. It's, you know, it's not necessarily the posture that a Christian should be having that I, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. I don't know how Daniel's doing. Right? I, I, it's my job to know how Daniel's doing, not because I'm the pastor, because I'm a member. It's your job to know how Daniel's doing, 
Now, again, you have to keep that within wise limits depending on your sphere of responsibility or your sphere of authority, what your other jobs in the church are and so forth. But we all keep watch for one another. And so to some degree, the whole church is our shepherd. Um, again, not so that we're busy bodies, but uh, so that we watch out for one another and care for one another. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that you, you always know is what is someone's attitude. When I was raising four kids, my youngest is now 27, uh, but the, nothing got them in more trouble than a few things. One, disrespecting their mother. That was big trouble. But another was telling on the other brother or sister with an attitude of rejoicing in their getting in trouble. That was big trouble. Now, if there was a genuine care, I'm concerned. Uh, you know, one, we had a situation in our family where uh, one, of the, one of my two sons was dating a, a girl in high school, that, and it wasn't a very wholesome or healthy relationship. And everybody in the family saw it. So we had a family meeting. And starting with the youngest, I let each kid talk about that relationship and how they saw it. By the time it got around to me, I didn't have to say anything because that the particular son had seen this isn't a good relationship from the wisdom of what their brothers and sisters had to say and their mother. And so all I had to say is what they said. <laughs> That was my deep insight. Yeah, what all they said. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and that was enough. And, and the young man said, well, I, I can see that it's unhealthy. Thank you, and I'm going to break it off. And he did. And God had a much better way for him to go down the road. So does everybody, I hope everybody gets this. Shepherding is, uh, n- you know, not what most churches do. Most churches... Um, you attend, but nobody really holds you accountable to anything. If, if you're missing, nobody calls you to see if you're okay. Uh, if you're down, nobody's in, uh, spending some time with you to encourage you. If you're confused, no one's trying to help you find your way. And we really should care for one another. And pastorally, shepherding is everybody's job to various degrees for everybody. And one of the biggest mistakes that people make is guys, I'll pick on David since he's such a good guy, uh, is, you know, David would be wrong if, say, he's concerned about something that is going on in my life or John Gray's life and Daniel's life if he were to just say, well, it's not my job because I'm just 17 and they're like 65 or something. But... Uh, you're not there, but uh, <laughs> still got a couple years. So, but you know what? It it gets down to how you would do it. Like if David just hauled off and rebuked me in some know-it-all arrogant way, that would, which is, of course he can't do that because it's not congruent with his person. But uh, but if he did, he'd be out of line. So, you know, when I have to correct someone like Ray Nethery or somebody uh, more mature or older than me, I would say, well, you know, 
uh, it, I might not be right, but it it just seems to me like you have, have you thought about this or or are are you okay about that or or something like that? Uh, you would come with a humble spirit, but it really is our job to watch out for one another. Amen.